welcome to the One Voice for Neurology podcast, a series of seven podcasts exploring why it's time to make neurology a priority, how that can be achieved with a global and uniform response, and what that could mean for the future of neurology and those living with a neurological disorder. I'm Sam Polly, and you're listening to episode six, entitled Serving and Supporting. Thank you for joining us on this special series of podcasts in which we're exploring the new One Neurology Initiative across seven daily episodes. In our previous episode, we discussed the endless R&D dilemma, and today we're focusing on serving and supporting people living with neurological disorders. We have a fantastic and very full lineup of guests today, plus we'll be hearing from neurological organisations on our One Voice for Neurology podcast, Answer Phone. So let's meet our guests. Professor Paul Boone, President-Elect at the European Academy of Neurology. Professor David Dodick is past president of the International Headache Society and chair of the Global Patient Advocacy Coalition. Maria Brandau, Global Senior Public Affairs Manager at the global pharmaceutical company Lumbeck, and Astri Arneson, president of the European Huntington's Association. A wonderful lineup and a very warm welcome to you all. Professor Dodick and Professor Boone, I'll start by chatting with you both. But before that, I just want to remind listeners that we would love to hear your thoughts. So do make sure to join the discussion with us on Twitter. You'll find us at at one neurology underscore. And we're using the hashtag one neurology. Professor Boone, Paul, let me start with you. If we only have nine neurologists or neurosurgeons per 100,000 people in high income countries, and and that's a much lower figure of 0.1 in low to middle income countries, how can we really care for people living with neurological disorders with such a limited workforce? That's a good question. And the the obvious thing would be to increase the workforce. Partially, that is actually what is taking place on on my simple, as an example, on my watch, I've seen an increase of about 50 to 60 percent of the number of residents being trained. Uh, neurology residents in the low uh, countries. Uh, but that takes time and that takes a lot of resources, but it's it's one of the logical things to do. That being said, the other option, more immediate option, is that we free the neurologist from doing all kinds of things apart from providing care. And then that's where multidisciplinary approaches come in, you know, with nurses and nurse specialists, phys- physician assistants, and, and even volunteers. So I think that is the way to go. Now, the problem is a bit more complicated, to be honest, because on the one hand, we have a limited workforce. On the other hand, people require, neurological patients in general require extra care. They require more attention. They want to still see the neurologist. They want to have personal attention, personalized care. So we are facing a troublesome situation. So I cannot solve that problem. I can only say that there is a couple of solutions possible. And that's what I just tried to explain. Is the patient-doctor relationship changing, would you say? Well, you would, you would think, yes, uh, the patients are happy with seeing other professionals at the same time. I still think that when explaining a difficult diagnosis, when taking care of the follow-up of patients with chronic disease, at least my patients, they still want me. They want to see the neurologist. They want to have the care and the expertise. That is hard to replace. So in that sense... The classical patient-doctor relationship has not changed so much. David, what's the role currently of medical societies from specific disorders in terms of working with patient groups, would you say? 
Well, Sam, I think it varies depending on the medical society and depending on the country. Let me just give you a, a recent and very specific example. I'm past president of the American Headache Society and past chair of the American Migraine Foundation. So the American Migraine Foundation is a public-facing nonprofit that educates patients and supports patients, and they're tied to a professional society, the American Headache Society. So the American Headache Society is putting out a position paper on appropriate integration of new therapeutics coming into the space. And so they reached out to the American Migraine Foundation to get the patient's perspective on how they feel new therapy should be integrated into clinical practice. And that patient voice was represented in the publication that will be published in the near future. So having and integrating the patient voice, both on clinical and on research matters, I think is becoming increasingly important for professional societies. Paul, would you say that that's the same with broader neurological societies? Oh, definitely. If you ignore the patient perspective, I think a lot of the activities of a, of a broader society like the European Academy of Neurology becomes irrelevant. I mean, we all speak with one voice in terms of patient-centered care being, you know, the standard. That should be what we are all striving and aiming uh, for and that's I think that's correct from a structural point of view the way it works is that the science and the content within a, a general neurology society like European Academy of Neurology is driven by its panels we have scientific panels for each of the subspecialty fields in neurology uh, well it is our policy since a few years to have in each panel at least one patient representative so all the policies everything that is tactical and strategic that is being discussed with regards to the content, the patients have a seat. David, would you say that we're now seeing a change towards becoming more active advocates for and with their patient communities? Without a doubt, in a way that I've never seen before in my, in my career. I'll give you an example. This Global Patient Advocacy Coalition brings together over 30 different organizations, both professional societies, other foundations, regulators, and so on, and from multiple different disciplines, from pain, from headache, from general neurology. So we see all of these organizations coming together with patients at the center of the table to advocate for and on their behalf. And I can tell you that this group creates globally, but acts locally. So a perfect example of that is we've collaborated with the Japanese Headache Society and the Japanese Patient Advocacy Coalition to implement an employee-employer workplace initiative to raise awareness around migraine in the workplace and begin to support those employees who have migraine in the workplace and ensure that they find appropriate care. And again, But again, we're working with the patient community and the professional community inside of Japan to do that, and we plan to do that in countries all over the world. Paul, just one final question for you. How can people living with uh, neurological disorders be better supported with regards to stigma and the issue of their disorder being invisible? Well, very good question. Two, two aspects two aspects that I really would like to, to cover in my answer here. Well, one key to resolving or solving stigma is increasing public awareness. I'll give a very short, a very, very concrete example. A kid has a seizure at school. Uh, that provokes stigma in any community. What to do? But I mean, the concrete initiative could be that on the local uh, level, a person from the Epilepsy League comes to the school, teaches about epilepsy, takes the class uh, and teaches them about this. And gone is the stigma. With increased understanding, it will not lead to problems with this kid that had the first seizure in school. 
neurological diseases are very frequent. On the other hand, you mentioned the invisibility of some diseases where we know that many of the rare diseases are neurological ones. There comes in the invisibility. And I think initiatives like the ERNs, the European Reference Networks, I think are really key, again, to remove stigma, to improve public awareness about those rare neurological uh, diseases and conditions. David, do you have anything to add to that? How do you think people living uh, with neurological disorders could be better supported in terms of stigma and the issue of their disorder perhaps being invisible? Well, I, I really, really love what Paul just said and the examples that he used. I think it's more about public understanding, as Paul alluded to. It's not just creating awareness because the public is aware of epilepsy, but they don't have an understanding of what epilepsy is. So it's about public education to generate public understanding of the underlying nature of a disease. Because to use Paul's example, if a young kid had a seizure and someone from the Epilepsy League or an expert came in to educate the class and the teachers on what epilepsy is, I dare say not only would there be more respect for that child, but we might see more young people being interested in neuroscience. They would be fascinated by this, creating a not just awareness, but an understanding and an education around the underlying nature of these diseases is what's going to eliminate the stigma. Wonderful. Well, thank you both so much. Please don't go away because we're going to hear from some other guests and then we'll be bringing you back in. But let's just take a moment because throughout the series, we've been asking stakeholders from across the field of neurology to leave a message on our fictitious One Voice for Neurology answer phone. Now, this episode, we asked our callers about caring for people living with neurological disorders and how the One Neurology Initiative could improve care. Let's have a listen. Hello, you've reached the voicemail of the One Voice for Neurology podcast. Please leave your message after the tone. Hello, my name is Anita Vatlan. I'm the CEO of the Norwegian Alliance for Informal Carers and also a member of the board of Eurocarers, working for informal carers, no matter who or whom they are caring for. When somebody becomes a patient, people of all ages close to them become their informal carers, doing everything from medical help, transportation, coordinating care, motivating and trying to pay the bills. Informal carers are in fact giving 50 to 80% of all the care and support to sick and elderly people all across Europe. Patients should be supported from the professional healthcare system. Informal carers need support from us as a society, no matter who you're caring for. They need to be recognized. They need information and training, respite care and the possibility to combine their caring role with working or studying. They too need to be able to take care of their mental and physical health. My hope for one neurology initiative is informal care and support the people they care for. Now we need to support them with systems and possibility to make them able to care, but also to live their lives. We do not need two patients out of one diagnosis. Thank you and have a nice day. Hi, I'm Wolfgang Ertl from Marburg in Germany. I'm a neurologist and I must tell you one neurology is a great initiative. Education is vital. Education of doctors and patients is extremely important. And doctors have to learn to listen to patients. And you should stop talking because the patient comes to you. He has been waiting for days to see you. And he wants to tell you everything which is in his heart. That is point one. And you have to understand the language of the patient. You have to learn to speak in real life examples. For example, if your brain is sick, you tell the brain is a machine with a tank, with 
petrol or all these examples you think about. So and patients understand what you say. The second problem is the classroom education, which is done by professionals alone. Patients come in as sick people. They are not coming in as partners. So the universities should actually design a new program that patients are participating in planning lectures. The third problem is stigma. Children are totally different than adults. They have no prejudice. If you ask handicapped children to come into a kindergarten with healthy children, you will be amazed. Children will never forget that they are brain-diseased children, and they will then know when they are adult, there are brain-diseased adults. Hello, this is Professor Samir Zuberi, President of the European Pediatric Neurology Society, otherwise known as the EPNS. We are a society for physicians from Europe and beyond with a research or clinical interest dedicated to caring for children living with neurological disorders. Our society's goal is to promote training, clinical care and scientific research to improve care in the field of child neurology. We provide our members with a platform for networking, education and developing research collaborations and we set the training standards for child neurology throughout Europe. The EPNS continues to work towards strengthening our partnerships and building new connections with other European-level allied neurological scientific groups and patient groups. The EPNS looks forward to lobbying for high-quality patient management to prevent and treat childhood neurological disorders at the European level. We see One Neurology Initiative as an important tool to help us reach this goal. Child neurology is changing rapidly with technologies available for rehabilitation and new gene therapies which will transform the lives of children with neurological disorders in the future. Some interesting points there. Maria, let me come to you now. You are Global Senior Public Affairs Manager at Lundbeck. I wonder if you could tell us, we've been hearing about the importance of patient voice in the past. Pharma did not involve the patient so much. How has that changed? Thank you so much for that question. I think uh, we keep trying and, uh, and you will see that increasingly pharmaceutical companies have really tried to integrate as much as possible this notion of patient centricity, but also actually make it core to their corporate values, their corporate belief systems, their mission statements. There are, however, uh, still improvements to be made. I think the first one is, you know, the legal compliance framework that we operate. So on the one hand, you know, we're very grateful that we have that legal framework, uh, legal compliance framework to operate within, but it's not always very easy to navigate in. And so the, the big question is, how do we integrate that patient voice earlier on in the value chain? So that's one thing. And then the second thing that I think uh, Professor Boone has alluded to is, um, is there an awareness from the patient community that they do have a role to play earlier on in the, va- in the, in the development of medication? And also, is there a know-how? From our end, we're really keen to hear what are the real unmet needs that uh, people with a specific uh, disease have and what are the most bothersome symptoms and how to best measure them. Um, But we're really sometimes um, struggling how to navigate these two aspects of it. But we hope with your help, we can uh, we can get there slowly but surely. So who would you say, Maria, values from and what is the value of a more patient centric approach then? 
I think everyone involved in healthcare and uh, and even beyond would benefit from it. I think that uh, more specifically for for looking at uh, at the pharmaceutical industry, for us it's really key to understand how the disease impacts the daily lives of the people that have been diagnosed with these diseases. And sometimes when we do some surveys and we compare the output of the surveys from the healthcare perspective, we see a difference in the answers of 20 points on average. So, you know, there is sometimes a mismatch. And and so it really is important for us to hear from the people that are really impacted uh, from that disease so that we, uh, on the other hand, can try and build a society with the best medication that will deliver on quality of life for the people we're seeking to help. Wonderful. Thank you, Maria. Now, we'll be bringing everybody back in for one final discussion at the end of the episode. But first, I wanted to remind you that you're listening to the One Voice for Neurology podcast. And today we're talking about serving and supporting people living with neurological disorders. Don't forget, we'd love you to join the discussion with us too on Twitter, where you'll find us at at one neurology underscore, where we're using the hashtag one neurology. But now it's time for our daily audio diary from somebody living with a neurological disorder. I am Elena. I am the current executive director of the European Migraine and Headache Alliance. I suffered migraine since I was 12 years old. Today, once more in my life, I woke up this morning with an explosive brain that I couldn't move. I couldn't move my head, I couldn't move my legs, I couldn't stand up, I couldn't go out of bed. That has happened so many times in my life. I had a full agenda. I have had to ask someone to call and cancel most of my activities of the day. When I was around 30, I had a very good opportunity to have a very good place in a national organization. I went through all the examinations and when I got to the final day, I woke up like today and I couldn't go to that interview. But of course they didn't understand it. And I felt miserable as I have felt so many other times in my life with different opportunities, with familiar moments which I have been waiting for my children or my grandchildren to come home. And the day that they come, I have this migraine and this headache and I cannot be with them and I need to be seated on a corner or in a dark room. That has happened so often. This condition is a neurological disease. Everyone thinks that it is just a headache a little bit stronger, but it is a very, very complex neurological disease. It's very difficult, it has lots of triggers, it has difficult treatment. There is no way to check it through a test, through a scan, CAT scan or anything like that. Just talking to the doctor and telling the doctor what happens to you, he or she will find out and give you a good diagnosis. But to find a good doctor that could give you a good diagnosis and therefore a good treatment afterwards it's also a challenge. It's not so easy. In a moment, I took the decision to advocate for migraine. We are the sufferers. We are the only ones that can advocate for our cause. Nobody else is going to advocate for our cause. 
But migraine has a lot of stigma, a huge stigma, and we tend to hide our condition because people doesn't know whether it is a mental problem or a neurological problem. The real truth is that if you are episodic, one day you are out of order completely, and next day we are perfectly normal. In general, there is a lot of lack of information around the medical group of people. So we need some flexibility and we need a lot of understanding. Understanding, respect and information is what is missing in this world about migraine. Society doesn't understand what it is. Elena Ruiz de la Tour there talking about her experience of living with migraine. Now, let me bring Professor David Dodick and Professor Paul Boone back in. And I'd like to welcome Astri Arneson as well. Astri, welcome. You're president of the European Huntington's Association. Thank you all now for joining us together. In just a few words, I'm going to come to you all. Perhaps you could all say from your own perspectives, what is key to best serving and supporting people living with neurological disorders and and their families? Maria, let me start with you. We've talked a little bit about stigma, and I couldn't agree more with Professor Dodik and Professor Boone. A couple of elements in relation to stigma I would like to add is the importance of evidence generation. We need the evidence and the bulk of evidence to make a business case so that policymakers understand that investing in brain health is an imperative. We cannot afford not to invest in brain health if we are to succeed in the future. And the uh, other element in relation to stigma and education, and I would like to talk about the power of empathy. It, uh, it really helps us to put a face to those invisible diseases that we've talked about and to create that empathy from people that maybe don't even know that they have someone in, the, in their network that is impacted by those diseases to really relate to, uh, to the daily struggles and to understand why we need to invest in brain health. Paul, let me come to you. What would you say, again, in just a few words, is key to best serving and supporting people living with neurological disorders and their families? From a professional perspective and from the perspective of the European Academy of Neurology, I think we need to have our voices heard much better. We need to instill public opinion about the burden of neurological disease. We need to reiterate and repeat that the brain is one of the most important organs of our body. It is the controlling organ. It is an organ that is key to what we are, to our personality, to what defines us, our individuality. I think this is it's, it, it is a very good message that we should, that we can bring and we should bring in more. So I would put the strong emphasis on public awareness and teaching and understanding of what the brain really means. And David, let me ask you, what would you say in a few words is best, is key to best serving and supporting people living with neurological disorders? Three C's among the G7. What I mean by that is collaboration, coordination, and communication among all relevant stakeholders speaking with one voice that amplifies the message. And so the G7 to me is the is exactly the people, the groups that we brought together in our coalition, which are professional societies, patient advocacy organizations, corporations, right? Because many of our patients are employed, are in the workplace, uh, employers, regulators, pharma, national funding organizations like the National Institutes of Health, and policymakers. So those are the seven organizations that should be involved in the coalition, all coming together, all collaborating, coordinating, and communicating with one voice. And so 
Together, we can solve this problem, but only together will we be able to solve this problem. Astrid, I'd like to bring you in now. Thank you so much for joining us. Would you agree with our other guests? What is the priority from your perspective for patients and carers? Is there a disparity there with what they're saying or on on the same page? No, I don't think there is any disparity. On the contrary, I really uh, support what they are saying. And, and for sure, this has to be solved by a collaborative effort with the different stakeholders, uh, developing an infrastructure that really makes the expertise needed available to each patient and family. And I think, I mean, we could start tomorrow if all people, uh, the clinicians uh, understood the severity of a brain disorder or a neurological disorder. And it's the complexity and it's how symptoms interfere with, you, with each other. It, so the brain is controlling us. And one symptom in the brain is really interfering with a lot of things usually. And if all clinicians could really understand that and then listen, how is this for you or your family? Then we could be helped a lot. So as patients and family members, we need to stop being silent, express ourselves, express our needs. And then if healthcare professionals listen to us, we can achieve a lot. And then we need to work on the systematic level, of course, and building the infrastructure. And Astrid, we've spoken quite a lot about uh, the patient-centric approach, putting the patient at the centre and the patient voice. How can we empower patients to have that voice? I think as uh, really addressing the stigma is an important part of that because what I experience is that patients uh, are reluctant in a way, or many are reluctant to come forward. And we need to be there as their supporters and facilitators to bring their voice out there because it's important. And I also think that that we can represent a safe haven, so to speak, to be that bridge towards pharma, towards health authorities, because it's a bit scary to be there alone and we are much stronger together. So I think uh, strengthening the associations and support us, helping support patients come forward and be that voice is, is a good way forward to strengthen this collaborative effort that's needed. I can say I totally agree with Astrid there. Destigmatization is a big part of mobilizing the patient community and empowering them. And also, I would say, educating them as to what is available, that there's help out there. There's things that can be done because a lot of patients may not understand that anything can be done to improve their current situation. And there's so much that can be done. So that's part of empowering and mobilizing them and activating them to come forward. Like there is help uh, and there are people who do want to help you. So I think that's important too. Wonderful, thank you. Vladimir Hachinsky, I'm Professor of Neurology at Western University in London, Canada. You're listening to the One Voice for Neurology podcast. Thank you for doing so. Well, let's uh, let's turn to the One Neurology Initiative because we've been talking about that throughout the series of podcasts. David, in our previous episode, we heard from the American Brain Foundation about the Cure One, Cure Many philosophy, uh, that uh, making progress in one area leads to progress in another area. Some listeners may feel that patient centricity and a bundled approach are perhaps contradictory. How can they work in tandem and successfully? So yes, the American Brain Foundation's philosophy is cure one, cure many, and that's based on very tangible recent experience that one of our scientific breakthrough awards was given to an individual who came up with the cure for spinal muscular atrophy, which is now being used to treat other neuromuscular disorders such as Duchenne muscular dystrophy. 
And so let me just give you another example. If we focused on neuroinflammation or inflammation in the brain, right, we would be tackling many different diseases from neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's diseases to multiple sclerosis to epilepsy to migraine to traumatic brain injury. So that one underlying pathological process cuts across all neurological diseases. So key insights into the biology, the neurobiology of neuroinflammation, new targets and new treatments for one disease could have implications for treatments in other diseases. That's why I think patient centricity and this one neurology initiative makes such perfect sense because we are dealing with one brain and we are dealing with a limited number of pathologies Maria, let me come to you. Um, Lumbeck has prioritised brain health. Why and how important is it to look at the commonalities in your approach? Well, thank you for that, Joel. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the burden of disease when it comes to brain health. And, and Lumbeck has a long history in, in the field. And, and we do have that long-term commitment to uh, brain health. If we are to put together the, the number of people impacted by these different diseases, we nearly reach around half of the world's population. And I just think that's unacceptable. And I think you will all agree with the, with me to say, you know, this is unacceptable. You know, within mental health, within neurology, we need to work together to, to talk about the brain as the most complex organ that we know the least of. That is so fascinating because there are a lot of commonalities. Thank you. Astrid, do you see potential benefits for individuals in the service and support that they would receive from a more bundled approach? For sure. I think that that's the only way that we can really look for a, for a sustainable solution. From a rare neurological disease, a rare disease, it's there are several thousand. So we cannot find one solution for each separate ones. We need to categorize because we also share a lot of terms of needing, you know, a multidisciplinary approach, chronical. We need long-term and progressive disease, many of us. So the needs change as the disease progress and, and, and evolves. And I'm sure that we can put together centers really able to cope with a broad number of diseases because we learn from each other also, which is something I definitely learned from talking to other disease groups that we have a lot in common, even if we we are also unique. Maria, what opportunities do you see to work better in partnership with patient associations and patients? Thank you for that question. And I think that patient associations have this uh, this unique place in capturing unique insights uh, of the patient community that they represent. And for, for pharma companies, it's really essential to get those insights as early as possible in the process to understand, okay, what are actually the real needs and what are patient preferences as well? So, you know, it's important that, you know, the patient groups uh, bring us out of our uh, our ivory tower and uh, help us as well to listen to what those those needs are, I would say. And then I think we've talked a, a little bit about this as, as well, uh, which is at a global level, how do we find uh, the common agendas that we all agree upon? And they're not that scarce. We share more than what we may think initially. I think uh, it's a question of being in good faith, um, having some key principles of uh, listening and mutual respect for what each stakeholder brings to the table in terms of expertise and rolling up our sleeves so that we can together really advocate for better brain health towards policymakers that not investing in brain health and in brain research is a non-negotiable. Paul. Oh. What would you say is, is your dream for the One Neurology 
initiative. What do you think uh, the opportunities there in partnership and what would you like it to achieve? Well, apart from obviously uh, having success and reach more concrete goals with all the stakeholders involved, my personal expectation would be to work much closer on the European level, much closer uh, with the patient organizations and with the organization that basically represents the neurological patients in Europe, which is EFNA. Uh, I think we have worked together in the past a lot, uh, but I think this is a unique opportunity to even, well, to intensify our collaboration and to really team up and go to all the other stakeholders that have been mentioned previously and really make a very, very strong statement with regard to neurological disease on the, on the European scene. David, let me come to you. What's what's your hope and dream for, for the One Neurology Initiative, perhaps particularly in terms of partnership? I think we need an international G7 that includes the seven different stakeholders that I talked about, the professional societies, the patient advocacy organizations, corporations, regulators, pharma, national funding organizations and policymakers from around the world. We need to create globally and act locally, and we need to support those societies and patient advocacy organizations on the ground who may be in in the developing world, right, where they have fledgling organizations. We need to be able to support them so that they can implement policy initiatives and and a blueprint that we come up with locally in their own region. That's what we need. We need an international collaborative effort with all stakeholders at the table creating globally and acting locally. And Astrid, let me give you the final word. How do you think people living with neurological disorders could be better served? And what can the One Neurology Initiative do to help with that? What are your dreams for the initiative? So my dream is it's really bringing the stakeholders together. And I certainly support of, of working on a, on a global overall perspective and then act on the ground uh, simultaneously. So I think it, I see it like a kind of a symphony where all the different stakeholders hear some of the same messages being brought to the table by all the different stakeholders. And then we can bring in, I think, I mean, I have friends in India and in other parts of the world, and they are very rarely uh, invited to the table. And they represent huge resources, both scientifically and also definitely from a clinical perspective in how to provide services with maybe relatively smaller means than we are using in the northern part of Europe. We can learn from each other and we sh- we also need really to address on the ground because doing something uh, to improve is so much better than doing nothing. And and these patients are used to, uh, in, in general, are used to little. So for us, any progress is important. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. Uh, That brings us to the end of our episode. So thank you for sharing your thoughts. I'd like to thank all the guests that we've heard from during the episode for such a thought-provoking discussion. Don't forget, we'd love you to join the conversation on Twitter and to share your voice, or even better, share a video. You'll find us at at oneurology underscore using the hashtag oneurology. We look forward to chatting there. Do join us again for our final episode, episode seven, What Role for Policymakers, when we'll be joined by Dr. Taryn Duar, the head of the World Health Organization Brain Unit, and many other guests as we discuss the need for a global action plan and what the One Neurology Initiative looks like in practice. I do hope you'll join us then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the One Voice for Neurology podcast produced on behalf of the European Federation of Neurological Associations and the European Academy of Neurology, the umbrella organisations representing patient organisations and neurologists in Europe, with active contribution from the European Brain Council, produced and hosted by Sam Polly.